It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into another edition of the Skinny Podcast, the Potpourri edition, the weekly one with Rick Boring. I'm Richard Skinner from Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor. As always, we talk local sports, national sports, and maybe a ghost sex story or five. As always, it's presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. Rick, start us off. Skinny, the Reds won their second game in a row over the Pirates Tuesday night, 11-6, as Derek Dietrich hit three bombs and Lucas Sims, who the Reds got from the Braves in the Adam Duvall trade, threw seven brilliant innings while making a season debut before the Pirates finally got to him for four earned runs in the top of the eighth. Every other team in the National League Central lost on Tuesday, placing the Reds five games back of the first-place Cubs and one game back of the Pirates and Cardinals. Since the poor 1-8 start to the season, the Reds are now 25-21, and They've had double-figure hits for seven consecutive games for the first time since August of 1995. So, Skinny, following Derek Dietrich's three-home-run game, I ask you which player was the better free agent pickup this offseason for the Reds, Derek Dietrich or Jose Iglesias? Yes, both. I mean, really, honestly, both. They've been outstanding. You know, if you look at at some of the undervalued guys, and obviously Scooter Jeanette's not played this year, um, they've done a good job of finding that kind of – Later 20s, and, and Iglesias being, I think, 31, 30-ish, whatever, I think he's 31. That guy that's just still maybe either getting into his prime or isn't quite past his prime and is, for whatever reason, undervalued by teams and, and identifying that guy and, and going and getting him. Now, look, they've also gotten a little bit lucky because Derek Dietrich is now set a career high for home runs in a season, right? right. Iglesias, he's never been a great hitter. He's been an okay hitter. He's always been great with the glove. He's, don't forget, this guy was a former All-Star. And I've said it before, Jeanette, I still think the Brewers undervalued him because they didn't, they they thought his defense wasn't good enough to warrant what was a, a pretty good bat, but not a great bat. And I just think he got in the right ballpark in the right time to where a lot of stuff that was doubles in Milwaukee became homers in Cincinnati. They've done a, such a good job of that, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for it. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I told you I, th- I thought Derek Dietrich was a great pickup, but I never would have. If you would have told me he hit 17 for the season, I'd have said, sign me up for it. Give me 17 Derek <laughs> Dietrich bombs for the year. Coming off the bench, um, I, I'll take it. You know, give me Iglesias batting 260 and playing solid defense and batting eighth. Well, hell, they've had him batting fifth half the time because, A, you've had other guys not being productive, and, B, because he's the best in the league in, with runners in scoring positions. So um, that's a great question. I, it's hard to answer one or the other, so I'm just going to say yes. Yeah, yes is my answer to that. I mean, they're in a little bit different situations in terms of where they're at in their careers, but in terms of if you had the option to only re-sign one of them, which one do you think you go with for um, long term? I would probably go with Dietrich just because he's a little bit younger. Um, and I always think I can find a glove at shortstop. And I don't know if Iglesias... There's a part of me that thinks Iglesias, when all is said and done and the dust settles, is going to still be a 255 to 260 hitter. I, I really believe that. Although we're you know, we're, we're third plus of the way through the, through the season, so he's got a pretty large sample size. You know, Dietrich now, it's just adding on to the home run totals. I mean, where does this go? And especially if you look left-handed power hitter in that ballpark. I mean, the sky feels like it's the limit for guys like that. Yeah, I don't think Iglesias has, like, outstanding range or he's, like, one of the best fielders I've seen. I think like, he's really good, I don't, I don't think he's quite Brandon Phillips. Well, I mean, no, I think he's a very, very good shortstop. And like I said, if, he, if he'd have played normal Jose Iglesias defense, which is very good, and if he'd have hit 255 batting eighth, I would have said great because don't forget – you know, he only started the season at shortstop because of the injury to Jeanette. In theory, if Jose Peraza was hitting, 
You could put Peraza at shortstop and Derek Dietrich at second base. Problem is, Peraza really hasn't been hitting, so you're playing Dietrich more at second base and playing uh, playing Iglesias as an everyday guy. I, they didn't they didn't sign either one of these guys up to be everyday players, and yet here they are. No, and and I think that's the thing with Iglesias. He's not. He's you put him in there as a guy that you know is going to be perfect with the glove essentially he's yeah. not going to let anything get by him that he can get to um he has a good enough arm i think he's, he's just a, he's made a couple spectacular plays though he's just a very good defensive shortstop that is going to make all the plays and the way he's hitting i mean for him to hit around 300 does he have a ton of power no but he surprised us a little bit the the grand slam the other day Correct. against the pirates i mean he's got double power yeah i mean occasionally he can surprise you he can sneak sneak up on a ball especially in great american ballpark to the point that I think this is probably his upside, what we're seeing right no now. No question. He's not going to wind up the season over 300. I'm but, just telling you that right now. But you're fine with him regressing a little bit and being about a 270 hitter with the way he fields the ball. And maybe if he does regress, it gives you a chance to get Peraza back in there maybe for an extended period of time, and maybe he starts hitting again. Maybe it just it, it, it all evens itself out. Yeah, and I mean, with the way things are going, when Jeanette comes back, that's going to make things a little bit interesting in that infield because you do have a couple of different guys. And, and that's the great thing about Dietrich because – He's played first now for in place of Joey Votto. Yep. He's played left field as well. So, so, I mean, you know he can play second. Yep. You can move him around a little bit. So, I guess I would go Dietrich is probably the the better pickup. Now, he has a lower floor, too. Because I think you know, worst case scenario, Iglesias can start for you at this level. I mean, Correct. He's going to be a solid defender at one of your key positions. That's your worst case scenario with him. With Dietrich... He might not be an everyday major leaguer. Maybe this is all just kind of a fluke thing. But man, the upside he still has Maybe. and his versatility could really be game-changing in the same way that Scooter Jeanette was. Well, I mean, look, the, the Cubs I always thought were brilliant with, with what they've done with guys. With with Kyle Schwarber, who was initially a catcher, they moved to the outfield. Chris Bryant's played third, first, right, left. Ben Zobris has played second, left, right. I mean, could Dietrich be that kind of guy that he's just he's the super utility guy that you're going to find a way to get 145 starts out of him, um, you know, 80 in the outfield, 40 at second base, 20 or 30 at first base, and voila, you look up and he's got 550 at bats and 25 homers, maybe even more than that. I mean, he's on pace for far more than that, so I, I think he can be that guy. I think that's the right way to look at it. He's not a platoon player necessarily. He's an everyday starter for right. the most part, but as a utility guy in different places, and and you know, if a certain guy's hurt, like Scooter Jeanette was, then maybe he's your everyday at start, second for a while, but then maybe later in the season it's left field or something right. else, so I think because of that versatility and the fact that he still has some upside Man, it's it's really exciting to see what what is next and what the rest of the season holds for a guy like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and let's give the Reds management credit for this, the, the upper management, because, uh, look, the, the farm system hasn't produced enough. It hasn't produced a ton. It has now produced Nick Senzel. It's not produced the pitching. Obviously, that's why you had to go out in the offseason and get pitching because you just really don't have enough in your system. But, boy, the last few years, they've done a good job of finding guys like Jeanette, like Dietrich, like Iglesias. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Well, and the exciting part is you're looking, even like Lucas Sims, who, who pitched uh, in the— Yeah, you got him for Adam Duvall, who's right. basically out of the league. That, that's the thing is they've gotten some of these guys in the flips. Um, you know, when they've been trading, the Alfredo Simon trade, obviously, was— a big one. So they they've done a good job of getting rid of guys who basically were sell high well, at the at their peak of their abilities, got rid of them, got a little something back for them, and then that guy was out of baseball within a couple of years. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It's obviously not not part of this question, but it is an interesting topic because if if you look at you know the the hand wringing we all did when they traded Todd Frazier and when they traded Johnny Cueto and when they traded Mike Leake and when they traded um, Edinson Volquez and when they traded Jay Bruce. I mean, all the guys that they had to deal because they were they were basically saying we're starting over. And at the time, you're like, well, you know, these guys 
I mean, look at what they've done. Most of those guys have done since. Now, look, you didn't get a lot in the Johnny Cueto trade, but you've gotten some parts back in some of these other trades. And it's not like suddenly these guys went elsewhere and did great, right? Right. I mean, they really haven't. Most of Todd Frazier's been a disaster since he left here. Jay Bruce still can hit the ball out of the ballpark, but he's batting 190. I mean, so you know, Cueto's on the DL, and I'm not here to tell you that that, that would have happened in Cincinnati, but it's happened. So were you going to pay? Can you imagine if you were paying for Johnny Cueto, the money you were going to have to pay for Johnny Cueto for him not to pitch? Well, and let's not act like he didn't have a history of missing games. Right. He constantly right. had nagging right. injuries throughout right. his career in Cincinnati. No, I think... I think you know. Look, I would. I wish this would have happened faster, and it still hasn't. You know, I still hasn't been the complete turnaround. But I think they've done a good job of flipping guys and finding guys. And now, if you can continue to do that and do it in a good way, um, and then your farm system eventually catches up to it, then I think you got something working for you. That's the key. You need a couple of the farm guys to come right. through. A couple of your homegrown ones need to end up being what you thought they were going to be originally, because. Otherwise, they've done exactly what we asked them to do in the offseason. We, when we were saying, you need to look and try to find some guys off the scrap heap that have a little upside in the same way you found Scooter Jeanette, that's exactly what they did with Iglesias and, and Dietrich in this case, and it's worked out great for them. Yep, no question. Skinny, the Reds are playing better baseball recently, but two of the big holes in their lineup remain two of the bigger names on the team, and Joey Votto and Yasiel Puig. Votto is hitting 242 with a 340 OBP and a 366 slugging percentage with four homers and 10 RBIs, while Puig is hitting 220 with a 259 OBP and a 399 slugging percentage to go with 10 dingers and 31 RBIs. Do you have more faith in Joey Votto or Yasiel Puig turning around their season at this point? Well, Votto started to turn around, right? He had a really good weekend in Chicago. Now, Finally, right after you talked about right it after last talked week. about it. But, uh, you know, no offense. He had a couple of bleeders and he had a couple of bloops. But they do add up because he's had probably a couple of missiles that have been caught. So I'm not going to ding him for that. Um, I thought the most telltale sign was he crushed one on Friday. I mean, crushed one to right field. And stood and posed for a second. Not in a bad way. Just I think he thought he hit it out. It's one of those ones where he knew he absolutely Got all squared of it. it up. And it didn't even get to the warning track. Now, the wind was blowing in a little bit, but it was one where, as a batter, you usually know when you square one up, right? I mean, it feels good, the numbness, all that stuff. And you could just tell he thought, I got all of that. And it didn't come close. And so, look, the power numbers have been on a severe decline. And I'm okay with that as long as he keeps getting on base and hits 290. I'm okay with that, or 280, whatever it is, to get the on-base percentage to 400. Because still, even last year, despite those power numbers going way down, and they went way down last year, Still led the league in on-base percentage, so he still found a way to get on base. This year, up until this past weekend, he really had not. The average had dipped under 210. Um, he had struck out twice as many times as he'd walked. And he's always struck out at a, you know, a decent rate. He's always been around 90 to 100 strikeouts. But he's also always walked more than he struck out. He had struck out twice as many times as he had walked. And so you start to look at that, and you're like, well, when's this going to turn around? I just don't. The weekend in Chicago doesn't do enough to convince me that Joey Votto's back. Because yeah. Joey Votto's never going to be back. I just want Joey Votto to be serviceable. Serviceable is a great word. Um, and and at least what the Joey Votto this past weekend was serviceable. But Puig, I still think at his age, I think he still has a chance because he's been streaky throughout his career. Now, this has been a long streak of not hitting, but he also hit a couple homers in Chicago. Um, you look up and he still you know has ten homers and thirty one RBI despite the fact he's not hitting for some level of average. I, I I have, believe it or not, I have more faith that he bounces back just because of age than I do Joey Votto. I do too. And the funny thing is when you start talking about bouncing back, it's almost with, with Puig, he's almost there in reality. Because if you if you started the season saying he's going to hit, they're about, what, a third of the way through the season, right. at least in terms of his plate right. appearances. Right, he's going to hit 30 he's and drive at 100. 
That's about where you would have expected him to be. And you could have said his average would have been anything from about 240 to 280. Right. And I would have said, yeah, that sounds about right. So his average and, you know, his OBP is a little bit down probably. But in terms of him getting back, you know he's a streaky guy. You know he's an up and down guy. So I think he's actually having a season that we kind of expected. Yeah, and I think I think the more guys hit around him, the more he's going to relax too and not feel – it felt like for the first month – it looked like he was trying to hit a seven-run homer every single at-bat. Without question. He grind and sawdust. Yeah, no every question. Every at-bat. And I, I, it doesn't look like that right now. And, and again, like I said, the way the way this team is starting to score runs and hit, I, I thought they were going to be a good offensive team. I think the more they do that, the more he just relaxes and lets the game come to him and, and ends up putting up big numbers. With Vado, it feels like he may have to change his approach or something if he's going I, I to get the power I think he's his approach. Well, I don't, see, I don't think he'll ever get the power back. I don't think he's going to get the power back I think his bat is like so slow that he just cannot he just cannot do it. That's why he's choking well, up so much. How, if you look at if, if you've seen the video and I put it on a, on a column I did the video of the his weird check swings. Well, no, the video of his hands where they were in 2017 and the way he held the bat versus today. I mean, he held the bat almost upright down on the knob, except with two strikes. He choked up a little bit with two strikes, not like he's doing today. Now he is his hands are way low. He's choking up a lot. It's almost the guy that realizes I, I can't catch up to this stuff, man. I, I've got to I've got to get as quick as I can with this and get my bat in a position where I can just barely get through the zone because I can't see now I wonder how much of it is that that he really can't get his bat through the zone and how much of it is he's always been a guy he who wants to give himself the the longest amount of time the ball out of the pitcher's You're hand right. so one he can see whether it's a ball or a strike yep. and two he loves hitting the ball the opposite way okay and, and I'm dragging okay, the bat and, and, that and I'm okay with that except, I am too except for the fact that he struck out twice as many times as he walked he with can't get around me. on it Correct. anymore doing that I mean it feels like and he has no power doing it too yes. that's the other thing right. when you're constantly trying to slap the ball the other way and you're choking up on the bat you're not going to have any Correct. power that's so that's why I ask do you think maybe he has to go back to swinging uh, like a younger guy like I, he's got a little more you know I don't choke up on the bat I think it'd be worse strike out a little bit more I think often. I think it would be worse I think oh. for him it would be worse I think he he just does not have that power he does not have the bat speed and it scares him that he can't get the bat through the zone that's why you know the other reason he's not walking his teams are just saying here comes a 92 mile an hour fastball right down the middle you can't catch up old man that's the exact reason he's not walking it's right. people are challenging man. correct he's not the mistake hitter that he used to be you used to you couldn't throw him a bad pitch or he would make you pay with correct a you run. couldn't throw one down the middle of the plate he'd jack it out of the ballpark or or a hanging thing inside right. or anything like that guys go after him with their pitches now knowing that even if you throw the mistake he's probably going to fly out and this is a topic for down the road and i wrote that in the piece i wrote last week i mean i'll be honest if joey Votto gets himself to a point where he's having a decent end of the all-star break type thing i still think about moving if somebody oh, wants to pick it. up that that salary i still got to think hard about it if, if it means i swallow a chunk of the hundred mils to load i got to do it, man. If anyone's interested in picking up some of that salary and, and taking on some of that contract, you got to do it, even if you're paying a decent amount I mean, of it. The only thing that would change my mind is, is if I see the Joey Votto flash back to 2017 and say, okay, he's got another year or two in that in him. I just, I, I'm sorry, the sample size now is too big to believe that he's ever going to be a power hitter again. Yeah, the power hitting is not coming back like you said. It's just a matter of can he consistently be a get-on-base, hit right. 300 type of guy, and I don't even think he can do that with the way people are either. challenging him. He's Again, missing. i got to give him credit for the weekend in Chicago. It was great. He did great. He had a nice nice day Monday. But like you said, it's still a lot of just slaps yep. and bleeders. It did nothing to instill confidence that, oh, he he's looks back. like he's back. Correct, yeah. correct. Skinny ESPN's Catherine Taylor wrote a piece on Bengals new head coach Zach Taylor talking about his confidence this week. In it, star wide receiver A.J. Green said the following, I think the biggest thing for us, we have two team rules, be on time and protect the team. I think that's the biggest thing. The two rules for us and holding everybody accountable, holding everybody to a high standard. I think that's the biggest change from Coach Lewis. Everybody's held accountable. Everybody's held to that high standard. 
So I ask you, do you put much stock into what A.J. Green and some of his teammates are saying about the increased accountability in the locker room? Or is this just an example of everybody buying into the company line during the honeymoon phase with the new coach? Because uh, I'm going the latter. You hear that a lot, right? Yeah. A new coach comes in, everyone wants to recite what he's saying. Yep. It doesn't really mean anything's changed. Correct. Do you think there's a big change or no? I, I think there is to some degree. I mean, I, mean, I guess I, I could argue that, that the fact they cut Mark Walton as quickly as they did after three arrests – the fact that they jettisoned Vontez Perfect, um, I think that shows that they're trying to hold guys accountable for certain things. Now, let's see when something goes awry and a guy skips out on something, whatever. Let's see if there's accountability there um, during the season. I, I most of the time, I just look at that as just words. They're just they're just words. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're in that honeymoon phase. I think as a player, you do also want to buy in, right? You want to buy in that something's oh, different. I think so, you want to buy in that, that that there there is change. Um, and, and so I, I do understand that. But most of the time, most of these players they talk out of both sides of their mouth, and they just talk to hear themselves talk or to to make it sound right and good. Yeah, I don't get, buy any of. it. I never buy it. I, I tell fans that all all the time. With you know, obviously, when I'm I'm covering Xavier and uh, we've got the message board that we run, and people read into quotes that players make or recruits make, and I tell them a lot of times. Guys are just trying to get the interview over with. They just say things to right. answer questions because they've heard other people answer questions that way. A lot of very, very few times in those scrum situations or in a locker room setting when you're asking a guy questions, are they giving you thoughtful answers that actually mean anything? Well, to I them? would say this. I like AJ Green, so don't don't get don't take. I, he's a, just a good, solid guy. Um, you know, keeps to himself for the most part, leads by example. All the things you talk, all the things you want to talk about, and I like him. But I would say this, as a leader, and you should be, you've been here for a long time, if things were going awry, A.J. Green, couldn't you hold some guys accountable? Can't you help do that? What, what, what happened then? I would say I don't have a lot of um, empathy or time. I'm really not that interested in hearing from guys like A.J. Green and Andy Dalton if they want to start saying, well, now things are going to be better, right. and now we have better leadership. Because yeah, I, they have been the guys in control of this locker room, or should have been in the control of this locker room, for the last seven years. Yeah, now I will say, A.J. Green spoke up two years ago after that Thursday night loss against Houston, um, in which he was obviously upset he did not get the football in a key stage of the game and, and thought that that was one of the reasons they lost. And guess what they did? They fired Ken Zampezi, the offensive coordinator, right after that, made that rare in-season coaching change. So he did at least speak out then, again, basically against his offensive coordinator, and it cost the offensive coordinator the job. And I'm not here to tell you I blame A.J. Green for that. I think he was in the right, and to his credit, he spoke up. But when I hear this stuff of, of it's you know it's different and, and guys are going to be held to some different standard, okay, that you can say that now. Let, let's see when push comes to shove where you stand. Let's see if you're one in four, um, how that stands. Let's, let's right. see how that goes. The, the one thing that was slightly interesting to me is that I always did feel that for the most part, these guys liked Marvin Lewis as a guy and had his back. Um, you didn't hear a lot of people, right. even if they said there were issues with the Bengals organization, it was very rare that anyone sort of attributed anything directly to Marvin Correct. did this or didn't do this. He mentioned specifically in this, the difference with yes. Coach Taylor versus Marvin Lewis is this. So it is kind of interesting that A.J. Green is very directly saying the difference now is Marvin Lewis didn't hold us accountable. That's essentially what this quote says. Yeah. Now, whether he means it that directly That's or not, exactly what it he says. says it that directly. And the interesting part is you would think it would be the exact opposite, right? Marvin Lewis is 60 years old now, uh, took the head coaching job in, in his mid-40s, so he's obviously older school. Zach Taylor's 35. You would think he'd be more of a of a of a player's guy, right? Hey, young guy, well, you know, you're I'm not too much I'm not too much older than you, AJ Green. And it feels like that at least that the, the way this is being 
couched is the young guys holding you more accountable than the older guy held you. Yep, I would agree. As a 2016 second-round pick, wide receiver Tyler Boyd becomes an unrestricted free agent after the upcoming season. Reports project him to be looking at a deal in the $10 million to $12 million per year range. Boyd told Paul Daner Jr. of The Athletic, quote, I definitely look at the market and see where guys is at. A great example is Sterling Shepard. I feel like our game is kind of similar, kind of close. He got four for $40 million. I kind of feel like I'm in that area. Hopefully they come like that or a little bit more or around that way. My question for you is, should the Bengals be aggressive in their negotiations with Tyler Boyd and his agent and try to sign the fourth-year receiver to an extension before this year even begins? Or would you let the season play out and make him prove that he can replicate last year's numbers? Yeah, I don't think I let the season play out, but I, I also think that whatever you, you set your price if you're the Bengals, and it may be that what he's looking for, and it may be a little bit less. And if he decides he doesn't want a little bit less, again, it's a game because he's also rolling the dice that he's going to have a good year and he's going to produce and he's going to put up numbers that if he, if he does go free agency, he's going to get in that contract. You know, there's also the familiarity of if he does leave, it would be a third, well, hell, it would be a fourth offense in four years for him to learn because they changed from Zampezi um, to, to Bill Lazor to now this staff. So that's three in a, in a three-year span. If he goes somewhere else, that would be another new offense to learn and try to be a part of. And so there's also, look, Sometimes the grass isn't always greener on the other side. I do think they, they will pursue something here before the, the training camp and, and at least the season begins. Because a lot of guys and, and their agents, they just don't want to negotiate when the season starts. It's literally, let's get this done or else we'll, let's wait. Um, very rarely will you get an extension midway through a year. So I think they do. But I also think it's it's what they think the price is. Because, look, I mean, dude's only had one year. He's had one. He had a good rookie year, but not great. Was yeah. awful in year two. And was really, really good last year. It wasn't Pro Bowl caliber, um, but he was really good. And I, if he wants to equate himself to Sterling Shepard, that's fair. I think he's maybe even better than Sterling Shepard and has way more upside than Sterling Shepard. Yeah. But that's what he equates himself to. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that's probably about right. Um but yeah, I'm not. I'm. I don't know if I'm breaking the bank, but I'm certainly trying to give fair market. And the Bengals have been for those. Look, I'm critical of them. We're all critical. They have been really good at retaining their own because they've been fair with their own. They usually give them fair market value, and the players like that fact that they're giving them fair market value. So, I I think the sides will come to some term before the the season starts. It, it makes it a little bit interesting though because they're also the priority is probably trying to lock up AJ Green. Yes. And so you're dealing with a lot of wide receiver dollars, and it's not like they haven't been thinking about this and planning for this, but... You can't let both walk. Right. You certainly can't let both walk. At the same time, you're talking about shelling out a ton of money for two guys at the same position. I guess, um, how much do you think A.J. Green and his, his signing impacts Tyler Boyd, not only in the money, but also just from a standpoint, does... like. Tyler Boyd's best year was last year when A.J. Green was out for most of the year. Yeah, but so some of it was when A.J. Green was around, too, though. He right, also was producing pretty good then. But that's what I wonder. Do you think he'd rather stick around well, A.J. Green the rest of his career? Or you do you know, think he'd like to try to shine on his own? That, and that's bit? interesting because if you go back to Marvin Jones, I know the Bengals have gotten dinged for this. I, I still think that they did the right thing and let Marvin too. Jones go for the money he was looking. He wasn't a number one. And he wanted to be a number one. And he wasn't. Oh, okay, go. And he's proven in, in Detroit he ain't a number one. He's a very nice number two and should have gotten paid accordingly. And that's another Another interesting dynamic to this does Tyler Boyd think he's a number one and does he want to go somewhere where he's the featured guy maybe he does and if that's the stage and you're like we think you're our number two here's the money we're going to offer you and he says no okay see you later move on to another another wide receiver yeah, and I think in in a way, and the good the thing is for this year, you're going to get a productive Tyler Boyd, or you're going to get a very engaged Tyler Boyd, yeah, right? It's a contract year, for yeah. Him. So he he has to have a good year. Um, in a way, I think the Bengals kind of have that advantage of you have one of 
you know, I don't know what you want to rank him, but one of the top three receivers probably in the game, yeah. unanimously. Wherever you, want, wherever you want to go, 5, yeah. 10, whatever. He's certainly in that group. But, I mean, A.J. Green is an elite receiver no that no one's going to question you no sort of being number two to. So I guess in that regard, you may not have Tyler Boyd questioning it as much if he accepts that role. On the other hand, if he wants to be a number one, he clearly sees that he could never be that Correct, if he resigned A.J. Green. So I'm interested most in is, how he the, feels about that the, dynamic. And that's the funny part. You know, because Marvin Jones signed with Detroit thinking he was going to eventually be a one and, and, and whatnot, but I don't know that Tyler Boyd would get number one wide receiver money. I don't think he would, and even if he got the opportunity, I think he's very similar in, in to Marvin Jones in the fact that He's a great number two guy. I think he is too. He's not an ever, he does doesn't have that skill set. He doesn't have correct. that body. He doesn't have that ability athletically. But no, he is correct. A, but he is a great number two where you've got the and second. They're, and guy and they're different because Tyler's more of a possession number two and Marvin was more of a home Speed run threat guy. number two. Yeah. yeah, which is weird. But yeah, I, I think you know again, I both these guys are thousand yard receivers, and I think they can be in on this year's team, for goodness sake. So I think you can live off each other, live off of both. But yeah, I I, I get where Tyler's coming from. I don't think he's trying to break the bank when he talks about I want Sterling Shepard type no, money. I think ten million a year is very reasonable. I think for it him. is too. I, I, if you get if, give him four year forty million, I would not be upset with that at all. From a I would neither. I would neither because the other part is the drop off to the next guy is is severe. I mean, it is. I hope John Ross has a has a great season. I hope they this offense they find a way to do more things with him. I just don't think he's ever going to pan out to be the star that he was drafted to be. I don't either, and maybe it's foolish on my part, but I believe in what I saw from Tyler Boyd last year. I think he I is legitimately too. good. I, I don't do think too. he's going well, to I know. Go back to his rookie season. He was really good as a third receiver as a rookie. He was really good. Yeah. And just for whatever reason, he had a weird offseason. Remember he had the arrest with the with the peach vodka in, in his car <laughs> and all that stuff? And, yeah. Well, um, and you do you do have a point in the fact that they did change offenses again yeah, there. So, right. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a lot. So I, I think both sides, the, the cut to the chase, I think both sides will come to terms before the year starts. All right. Skinny, let's switch gears to college basketball. Jaron Cumberland announced on Monday that he is withdrawing from the NBA draft and returning to Cincinnati for his senior season. Cumberland was last year's American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. It was named the AAC Tournament MVP while averaging 18.8 points, 4.4 rebounds, and 3.6 assists, while also shooting 40.4% from the field and 38.8% from three-point range. We know Cumberland returning is huge for UC and first-year head coach John Brannon, but what does it actually mean in terms of expectations for the Bearcats? Also, what does Cumberland need to do to improve his chance of making an NBA roster next year? Let's go with the expectations. I think it's fair now to 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 ex, expect is not the right. Yeah, I guess it is the right word because you're asking expectations to make a run for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think this is an NCAA tournament team. You know, if you if you look, you know, everybody's kind of lamented the fact of of Logan Johnson putting his name in the transfer portal and Nizier Brooks putting his name in the transfer portal. You got your three top scorers back, including the Player of the Year in the league. That's a pretty good building block. If I'm a first-year coach of a program and you're going to tell me I'm going to lose two bit parts and get my three main back, including a player of the year, I'm good. Yeah. Give me that. I'll, I'll take that. I'll figure out how to make up for Nizer. Hey, look, I, I always poo-poo Nizer Brooks. He, he did have value because he had value on the defensive end. But I think you can fi- I really think you can find that. You know, Eliel Sosemi, too. Him. I mean, it's not like you're losing three key cogs here, right? I mean, Sasemi was an absolute zero. Correct. Let's just be an frank. absolute He's, zero. has brought nothing Correct. to this point. Um, Logan Johnson, fans were really excited, and I understand why. He was super athletic. His brother was a late bloomer that developed right. into a very nice player. And he had... I guess shown some upside more or less. He just showed he played the way UC fans like to play, which is hard nosed, tough, right. and athletic. He couldn't score at all. He couldn't shoot at all. Um, I don't know that that was like 
some huge loss. Nazir Brooks was an experienced guy who could really defend, and at, at bare minimum, he'd finish around the let, basket. Let me, let me ask, let me phrase this way. If, if I had told you I, you could have kept Logan Johnson, Elio Sosemi, and Nazir Brooks, and Jaron Cumberland would have gone to the NBA draft, which one would you have taken? Or, oh, or the vice versa? Uh, I'd take Jaron Cumberland. Yeah, exactly. Back. I mean, I mean it's, not even, it's not even close, right? And, well, but to your and point, that's why I think the expectation is an NCAA tournament bid, because you do have basically a, a big core of last year's team back. You know, but to your point with every, you know those guys leaving, I keep hearing a lot that, oh, their roster is in shambles or whatever. Oh, they needed Jaron to come back or their roster was in shambles. Well, yeah, without Jaron Cumberland, yes. you didn't have a very good team. But now that you have Jaron Cumberland coming back, that was most of your team last year. Correct. Your roster last year wasn't that good without Jaron Cumberland. That's exactly right. So I don't know that this team isn't going to contend for an AAC title once again. Um, you know, Memphis obviously has some freshman talent coming in. We'll see what that equates to. Right. But other than that... Who's that much better than this UC team in the AAC coming back? No, right. I, I don't. They have got the best player in the conference back on their team. I think they're probably the favorites or or number two going in preseason again this Agreed. year in the AAC. What that equates to in terms of national ranking, I'm not sure. I don't think I don't think they're a top 25 team, but I do think they're an NCAA tournament I think, team. I think they could evolve into that. I mean, I do too. again, be, if, if, Jeremiah, if Jeremiah Davenport, let's just say, is as good as I think he can be. And I don't think again. I don't think he's a 15 point a game guy as a freshman, but I do think he's a very very nice part to add. I, I still think this is a really good team. I, the, the problem is they need a point guard. Correct. I mean, they don't Correct. have an answer at point guard, but well, they didn't that, have an answer necessarily even with Logan Johnson because it's not like he was a sure thing for 40 minutes a and game. And could that be Jaron Cumberland? I mean, remember Mick well, I Cronin, think he's going to play some of it. And remember Mick Cronin talked about he was going to try to play him there to help his NBA stock, and maybe he was going to try to play him there because he knew out of necessity he was going to have to play him there. And maybe John does the same thing. And, and you know, sometimes at, at, at the college level – Point guard can be overrated. I mean, some guys get you in your offense, and then it's really not a, a you know a guy breaking everybody down. I think Jaron Cumberland can get you in your offense, and I think he can create for himself and others. Yeah, I mean, UC essentially played in their half court. They played to him out of point guard. Correct. They would year. enter the ball to him in the, on the elbow, and he'd turn and face up and then make a play. Now, I will say, John's system is very different yes. from that, and he usually has had a point guard right. that runs some stuff. But again, he slid Jalen Tate from the wing to the one last year and made that work. So he has experience in doing that with his best talent. Uh, I do think Jaron will end up handling the ball a lot for them. In terms of what he needs to do to make an NBA roster, yeah, though, that's a good question. I don't think him handling the ball more or playing more point guard entices NBA scouts at all because that's not what they want I just him don't to know do what else at their can, level. But I don't know what else he can do to make an NBA roster. That's a fair point. I think there's one thing that can actually increase his stock. And again, I don't know that means he gets drafted or gets on a roster. But in terms of... It's it's similar to what Trayvon what Trayvon Blue had to do, and I'm not saying they're the same player that they've had the exact no, right. same career. But what NBA teams want out of them is going to be the same thing, which is to be a heater off the bench to hit a couple threes and get back out of the game. And I just know Jaren's that, that kind level. of shooter. Well, so that's what he has to do. Right? Yeah, is prove that he can shoot at a knockdown at an elite clip. level, right? Because last year he got to 38, percent but that was by far the best he had ever done. Um, in terms of shooting, you know, be, prior to that, he was like a 35% shooter, I think, as a freshman on less attempts, and then like a 33% shooter right. the next year. So, him getting up to 38 was a big step last year, but that's not considered like knockdown point shooting. Correct. He needs to have a similar year to what Trayvon did his senior year, where he shot 41% from three. If Jaron does that with the type of tough shots he's attempting and the type of defense he's facing, that will raise some eyebrows, and I think that will give him a little more cachet when he's trying to get that two-way deal or trying to get, you know, the the he's going to get a camp invite. He's going to play yes. summer league ball. The question is, can he get the two, two-way deal to stick around after that and maybe get a call-up midway through the year on an NBA roster? And I think if he really proves he can shoot the lights out, 
he, he'll get that opportunity. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, that's just such a funky shot. I mean, it's obviously unique to him, and he's found a way to make it work. It's just really, really, it's a funky shot. But no, I mean, him coming back, I think, is huge for UC. Yep. Reports also came out on Tuesday that Xavier underclassmen Quentin Gooden, Tyreek Jones, and Paul Scruggs are all expected to withdraw from the NBA draft and return to school, though no, no formal announcement came from the school or the players themselves yet. Those three, along with Najee Marshall, who already announced that he was returning to school, gives the Musketeers four returning starters from last year's team that finished 19-16 and 16 and lost in the second round of the NIT to Texas. So I ask you, where should expectations be set for the second year of Travis Steele's tenure at Xavier now that we know Gooden, Jones, Marshall, and Scruggs are all coming back? You're the one that reported that, so kudos to you. Um, And the only reason, uh, I think somebody else nationally, I think John Rothstein also did, Paul Scruggs retweeted him, which made me think that Paul Scruggs retweeted him for a a quality (laughs) reason, right? Um, But yeah, um, by the time this podcast is up, the deadline will be very fast approaching and we'll have an official I assume these guys will have announced yeah, something official. on social media yeah yeah i mean i think it, it, it's big and i think i if they don't make the ncaa tournament it's an absolute utter disappointment i mean a, a severe disappointment i think honestly the way they played at the end of the year as a group the fact that you're bringing in a jason carter who is a you know a 16 point per game scorer in the mac and and yeah i know the mac is not going to equate to the big east but certainly a, a skill set that he brings that i think this team needs with more ability than a ryan wellage right that he was just a standstill guy right um I, i'd be disappointed this team doesn't doesn't make a run at a sweet 16 i really would i know that's a big step forward from not being in the ncaa to sweet 16 but i think this team this team is good enough to do that you have enough pieces now to do that experience pieces that a year in, a, in Travis Steele's system, the way again, the way they started to play at the end of the year, maybe it's fool's gold that just things clicked. Um, you know, the, the I just I, it would be I, obviously it would be utterly disappointing, and I think you would agree with that if they don't make the NCAA tournament. Yeah, no question, that's the bare minimum, and I think you're right. Expectations, at least from the fans' perspective, is going to be set at the second weekend. Yeah. I mean, that's where fans want to get to. That's where they expect to get to if they have a decent team coming back at Xavier um, at this point. But when I look at this team. I don't think it's unreasonable that they could do that, but at the same time, there were major flaws in the makeup of last year's roster. Yeah, but I think this roster is better. The makeup's better. Well, you're going to have to be getting the, the things that have to get better will have to come from one. Bryce Moore could end up being huge because the Western Michigan drive right. transfer because he gives you that shooter defender and defender, but with experience is the key here. Because everyone's really excited about Kiki Tandy, potentially even Damir Bishop as freshmen, what they can bring on the offensive end, how they can score. That's great. They're freshmen. And you and I both know, right. like, even a great freshman year could be 10 minutes a game yeah, and, and two and, or three points a game. And, and yeah, you know? and I know people go, well, what about those Dukes freshmen in the Kentucky? We're talking about it, yeah, we're, Kiki Tandy is going to be a nice player. He's not an he's yeah. not a one I mean, and dunner. Trayvon, <laughs> Trayvon Blewett was, he was a, a an impact guy as a right. freshman, I'd say, but he wasn't a game changer. He wasn't necessarily a difference maker as a freshman even. So, And I don't expect any of the guys coming in this year to be Trayvon Blewett. So I do think there are still some flaws with the makeup of this team in terms of like that starting lineup that you would project to be out on the court and the fact that they don't have a lot of skill um, and they don't have a ton of high IQ, high field type of guys. It's a lot of athleticism and length. So they're going to have to show the same type of defense they showed at the end of the year where they were, you know, Travis keeps recite, Travis Steele keeps reciting this stat that they were a, a top 25 defense the last 12 games of the year. Well, that's great, but that was only the last 12 games of the yeah, year. Correct. So you better get back to that point and sustain it for a full year Otherwise, I think people will be let down a little bit with the Xavier team because I don't think the offense is going to click instantly the way some people expect. Because, again, 
even with those four guys returning, you still are asking the next two guys are going to be grad transfers, learning a new system. And then after that, it's all freshmen pretty much. Yeah, off the top of your head, because obviously the, the non-league schedule is not very tough. It's not as difficult as it's been. So you have a chance to to really make a make a make hay through that. And the league is going to be down a little bit, right? No, the league is going to be way up compared to last year. Really? Yeah, because everyone almost returns. Everyone Mar- returns. Marquette so doesn't. Yeah, Marquette doesn't. But Marquette's one. They they returned guys through because they wanted to transfer out and leave. I mean, it was right. If Marquette returned everybody like that they were supposed to, they would be loaded again too. Agreed. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but All I mean, Marquette's the only one that's really going to be worse than they were last year. I think for the most part. So I, I think yeah, the, it's going to be a good year for the Big East. I think you'll have four teams in the top twenty-five again, and probably six, seven make the tournament. Um, it, it's going to be an up year, but. For Xavier, I, it's, it's I, the question mark. You brought up the schedule. It's going to be the question for them, really, in terms of are they ranked? What type of seed do they get at the end of the year? Will all depend on what they do early in the non-conference right. because they've got a great chance to win thirteen and zero and out in the non-conference go thirteen zero, and it may, it wouldn't be a shock at all. At the same time, if you lose one or two of those games, it's probably going to be an upset, and it's probably not going to look great on that resume. So all of a sudden, you're, if you lose those games early. Your chances of, of making the top 25 or getting that great seed may be taken away from you early on in the season just because you're going to have a bad loss or two on your resume already. So those those first 13 games of the year are definitely going to be important. All right, Skinny, the NBA Finals tip off Thursday night at 9 p.m. with the two-time defending NBA champion Golden State Warriors hitting the road to take on the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors held a 2-0 record against the Warriors in the regular season or the only team Golden State didn't have a win against this year. However, the Warriors are heavy favorites at minus 310 to win the series. Steve Kerr announced on Monday that Kevin Durant will not play in Game 1 due to his injured calf, and DeMarcus Cousins is questionable. Who do you have in the NBA Finals, the Warriors or the Raptors? It's not a matter of who do you have, it's in how many do you have them. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, yeah. Yes, you're right. All right, Warriors in five. And the one they lose is when Durant comes back, and then he sits the next game, and they win the next game, and that's that. No, unfortunately, I think you're probably. I mean, don't forget, right. I, I thought I mean, the Bucks were the team that had a chance to give the Warriors trouble, and and I, I'll give Kawhi. Kawhi Leonard has, if if his stock wasn't already high and it was already pretty high, he is he has elevated himself now into the off season of the stratosphere because he has played hurt, he has made shots, he's always been a great defender. Um, he is look. This was a good team. I mean, this was a Toronto team that 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 kind of blew itself up a little bit in the off season because it didn't feel like, Hey, the, the, the makeup was right. Well, the makeup has been right. And they have, yeah. they have proven that, that they, they, they were the second best team in the East all year. And so it's not an upset totally that they're in the finals. Um, but they're, they're not, they, they're not matching the, they're not matching golden state. They're just not. I've been wrong. I was wrong about the Eastern conference, the entire playoffs. I like, I didn't think the bucks were actually the best team. I did. I didn't think- no, I did. See, I thought the Celtics were going to. I thought they were flipping the switch. They were going. Well, to I did the after the first the series. Run. I'm with you. After the first series, I thought the Celtics were flipping the switch. I thought they were good. And then we get down to the Bucks and the Raptors, and I go, the Bucks have been the best team all year during the regular season. They finally proven themselves to me. I'm rolling with the Bucks. They're definitely going to beat the Raptors, and the Raptors recover from an 0-2 deficit right. to, to take the series in six games. So. I haven't been able to figure out this Eastern Conference, but I do feel very confident, like you, that no matter who comes out of the Eastern Conference, they're not touching the Warriors, especially with the way the Warriors have have played the last few weeks. I do think it's interesting that Durant Durant is still not coming back. I know. Does he play? Skinny, like we talked about last week, I don't think there's any chance in hell that he's not physically able to play Thursday night. I'll be honest with you. The the fact that it's now, we're going to be, what, about 
three weeks, maybe even a month removed from that initial injury. Is and that about which, right? Yes. And by the way, the only thing we've been told about it is it's a calf strain. It's the only thing Correct. we know about the injury. And again, the initial report was might be back for the next Day-to-day. game. And then it was, okay, he's going to probably miss the next game. And then he misses the next game. And here we are, hasn't played now since. Now we're eight games, eight games in? Nine eight games, games? And they've had an extra, they're going to have an extra, what, 10 days of rest on top of it before they play the, the game one? Yeah, sorry, this is about more than that. And whether it is the their management and, and Steve Kerr and, and them deciding our chemistry is too good right now to even risk it, we're going to wait till we lose a game to bring him back, we're going to baby him. Or if it's Kevin Durant, something's gone wrong in that locker room. He's everyone knows he's on his way out, and the the whole relationship is just fractured. And they're all kind of just saying, "Screw it, we're done. We don't need you anyways, and you clearly don't want to be here." So they're just moving on without him. I don't know exactly what it is, but something is clearly up because it's, there's no way a quote unquote calf strain, which we've received zero updates on, is holding him out of eight playoff games, including the Western Conference Finals and the NBA Finals. All right. Let me ask you this in a weird way. If Kawhi Leonard somehow wills this team to a seven-game series and or if they win it, if he wills them to a seven-game, let's just say that he takes them to the seventh game and they're just not good enough. It's just the Warriors are better, all those things. Although Toronto does have home court advantage in this series. Um, If he does that, or even hell, even if they get to six games and it's just a competitive series because he's helped make it a competitive series, and you have a chance to sign Kawhi or Durant, which one do you sign? And here's the thing. I don't even think there's like the easy call because one of them has the the better personality. They're both emo and weird and goofy. I know that. Have, have had weird off-the-court situations and how they've interacted with their organization. So I don't even see a surefire answer. I think I don't know, man. The, the only thing I would tell you, though, Kawhi in San Antonio, until he got wacky at the end, was a pretty good teammate and had success. He's now helped Toronto in a major way. And this is no knock as Kevin Durant. It, I want, he's such a talent. It's obscene. A seven-footer that plays the way he plays. It's crazy obscene. But he didn't will Oklahoma City to do it. And it took him to play with a bunch of other dudes who were really good to do it. And, yeah, he was a big part of that. He certainly was. But they're showing, and they've shown before, they can do it without him. Kawhi, to me, would be, hey, this guy's just a winner. Right, whatever you want to say about him, he's just a winner. I think that's a fair point. Now, I, I would, t- I think... His move of sitting out basically an entire I, year and the whole uncle situation, he wouldn't even talk to the organization. But, but he didn't was, hurt anybody other than himself in that, right? Well, I mean, he completely screwed the Spurs franchise. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, and I don't, I, I'm not saying he can't do that. It's his right to do yeah. so. But at that point, he's lost all benefit of the doubt of being a good teammate and being I a great guy. He clearly doesn't care about anyone else in that locker room at this point. Like, you can't do what he did to the Spurs and then say you care about the locker room. I, all There's I know just is no way. You, you, that may be fair, but. At the same time, all I know is the guy just wins. I don't don't disagree with that. And I, I mean, full disclosure, I'm a Spurs fan. So watching him do what he's done in Toronto has been... I didn't want him to be on the Spurs roster anymore after what happened well, sure, that last year. Sure. But at the same time, watching this and watching how well he's done is hard to watch. It's frustrating. Um, you bring up a good point. And I think, yeah, I would be very happy with either one of those guys... I still think I lean towards Kevin Durant just because it's seven feet. It's unguardable when it's at its yeah. best. There's nothing you can do with him. It really isn't. And he's just Kawhi's molded himself into a good shooter. Durant's always been a natural, excellent shooter. No doubt. So I think I would take that slightly. Although I do think Kawhi turns it on defensively a lot more than KD does, and he's I mean he's the best defender in the game. No at doubt. This point. So no doubt the way he shut down Giannis. It, and like I said, I just know that all I know is whatever teams he's on, they win. They do. And I know you can say that about Oklahoma City. They won, but they didn't win at the level. they. I mean, they had the parts in Oklahoma City to win a title. Yeah, and then, then you get back into that weird thing of like, 
how Russell Westbrook, how much is that personality not work with other superstars? So like there's all that weird stuff that you have to factor in because it's not like Kawhi's doing it on his own. Lowry's been very, well, no, very good. But in the league, you can't do it on your own. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> but that but that's my point, right? There's always that other right. superstar that you kind of got to look at and factor in that too. So it makes it tough to do an apples to apples comparison, but it's why this question is fun because we've got a pretty good comparison right now with those two guys right. and what we've seen this year. It's I mean, Kawhi is, you're absolutely right. He's raised his stock as much as anyone. He's he's the elite of the elite. He's right there with LeBron and KD, in my opinion, of you'd, you'd take any of them. No question. All right, Rick, uh, as always, enjoyed it. A lot to talk about. We'll talk again next week as we uh, do our weekly podcast. It's the Skinny Podcast, the Popery Edition. For Rick Brewing, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. As always, it's been presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati.